Let's turn this morning to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. And we're going to look this morning at verses 15 through 27. For context, let's back up and begin reading with verse 12. John 18, verse 12. Then the detachment of troops and the captain of the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound Him. They led Him away to Annas first, for He was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest, and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door outside. Then the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to her who kept the door, and brought Peter in. Then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers who had made a fire of coals stood there, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves. And Peter stood with them and warmed himself. The high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple, where the Jews always meet, and in secret I have said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Do you answer the high priest like that? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas the high priest. Now Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. Therefore they said to him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him whose Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter then denied again, and immediately a rooster crowed. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank You again for allowing us to gather here to look to Your Word. I pray that now as we come to Your Word that You would cause it to live to us. That we would be gripped by the truths contained here in these verses that we've read. I pray that You would be honored in the time that we have together. That Your people would be built up and encouraged and convicted, and comforted, and that those who do not yet know you would be drawn to you. Be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.
Now, when we come to this passage, we remember that we're on the night before Jesus' death. He spent some hours teaching His disciples. He's tried to tell them about this time that's coming, this time of His betrayal and His death. And it seems that every time it came up, they didn't really want to hear it. They wanted to change the subject. Or they assured Jesus that they would never leave Him. But now we come to this night. Jesus has gone to the garden. Judas has shown up and betrayed Jesus. He's been arrested and now he's brought before Annas, father-in-law of the high priest. And when we look at this passage that we're considering this morning, it sort of reminds me of the, the movies where a lot of times you have more than one plot going on at the same time. It's all working towards one goal, but the scene keeps switching back and forth from one place to the other. Recently, I've re-watched The Lord of the Rings, and that may tell you something about me anyway. Um, I hope that you enjoy those movies. They're great. Um, why read the book if there's a good movie? Um, but that's the way those movies are. One moment, you're watching Aragorn in the heat of battle, killing orcs with his sword, and then the scene stops, and you've got Frodo wandering through a swamp. And you're like, come on, get back to the action. Uh, and it may be a half hour before you get back to it. But when we come to this passage, it's sort of similar. We have one scene of Peter who's following Jesus and he makes it into the, the courtyard. Then we're left hanging. And we go to Jesus who's inside talking to Annas. And then the scene is cut off again and we're left hanging as we go back to Peter. So I simply, the only way I know to approach this text is to consider it in its scenes. So we have three scenes before us. And then once we work our way through the passage, we'll draw some application. But in this first scene, we find Peter following Jesus. Now verse 15 says, Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. And we often remember that Peter followed Jesus. We think of that when we think of this scene. But I wonder how often we forget that someone else was there. Now John doesn't tell us who this other disciple was. But in most cases when John doesn't tell us who a disciple is, he's referring to himself. So it is possible, in my opinion likely, that this other disciple was John. Now... That disciple, verse 15 says, was known to the high priest and went in with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door outside. So whoever this disciple was, whether it was John or someone else, he had the kind of family background, the kind of connections, the, some kind of history with the high priest and his family that when Jesus was carried in to see the high priest, this disciple was allowed to enter. But poor Peter, <laughs> he's left standing at the door. But verse 16 tells us that the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. So Peter goes, they're following Jesus. And I think that something is to be said for them following Jesus this far. You remember Peter said, Lord, I'll go with you all the way. I'll, I'll even die for you. You're not going to have to suffer the way you think you're going to have to suffer. I will go with you. 
So let's give some credit where it's due. Peter and this other disciple did at least follow Jesus this far. They followed Jesus to the high priest. Then then Peter is questioned in verse 17 by the servant girl, the one who had opened the door and let Peter in. She said in verse 17, The servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? (laughs) That's a way to put a question. You know, there's a way that you can ask certain questions that imply that there's only one right answer. When I worked in sales, we were not allowed to say, Do you want to buy one of these? Because what's your knee-jerk reaction if somebody says, do you want to spend your money on something? No. (laughs) So rather than saying, do you want to buy one of these, our approach was to take two or three or four products, present them to the customer, and say, you've seen all these, now which one do you think would work best for you? The question is asked in such a way, we're assuming you're going to buy something. We're assuming that you're going to spend your money, and that, in our case, is the only right answer as a salesman. So if you ever get presented that way, when you go into a store, that's what they're doing. They don't want you just to say, no, I don't want to spend my money here. They want you to buy something. Now, if someone approaches you, you're having coffee, eating a meal, you're doing some shopping, you go to work, whatever... Somebody comes to you, Don, and says, Hey, Don, now, you're a Christian, aren't you? It's a little easier to answer at that point. Maybe you've lived your life in such a way that they see some kind of difference. Maybe they've seen you reading your Bible. They've heard you pray. They know that you go to church. And some clues have signaled to them that you're a Christian. You're a Christian, aren't you? But if someone approaches you and says, no, you're not a Christian, are you? The, tr- the fact of whether or not you're a Christian is the same. What has changed is the way the question was asked. The way the question was asked implies that to this person, they have a bias. They have a preferred answer. And then you have Peter, who has been so confident up to this point. Lord, I'll go with you. Lord, I'll die for you. He even took the initiative to follow Jesus with this other disciple. He's gone as far as the courtyard, and a little servant girl says, you're not also one of the ones who followed Jesus, are you? Maybe she knew John. She was kind of embarrassed to know John. Yeah, he's following Jesus. He comes and asks me to let this other guy in. Now, you're not one of his disciples too, are you? And Peter, who has to this point been so bold, I can just hear him mumble these words. No, I'm not. I'm not with him. And it's like he just tries to blend in with everybody else who's there. The servants and the officers who made a fire of coals stood there, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves. And Peter just stood with them and warmed himself. He still wanted to be close, but when questioned, maybe when he felt the tension in the question, he wouldn't admit to being there with Jesus. So then the curtain closes on scene one. We're now inside 
the building. We're with Jesus and the high priest in verse 19. The high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. Now, what time of day is this? It's the middle of the night. It's well after midnight at this point. This is what you might call a kangaroo court. There is an agenda. There is a plan. Jesus will not be tried fairly and according to the rules. This is, by all accounts, an illegal trial. They were not allowed to call a court in the middle of the night with no witnesses. The high priest would have known that. They called Jesus into this room to be questioned. And and in these trials, really, the one who is being charged doesn't have to speak for himself at all by their law. The proper way for this court to be held was for the one who is being charged to be brought in, the charges to be made, and then two sets of witnesses would be called forth. First, you would have the witnesses to come in and testify to the righteousness of the one being charged. His innocence. And then after they have been given adequate time to speak and to answer questions, the next group of witnesses would be called in. Those who would try to validate the charge being brought against. The culprit, supposed. It should be heard first how he is innocent, what a good man he is, how he is not guilty, and then others may be brought in to testify to his guilt if they can. The one being charged shouldn't have to speak at all. But here he is being questioned directly without these witnesses in the middle of the night by the high priest. Jesus answered in verse 20, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet. And in secret, I have said nothing. Jesus says, why are you questioning me here in a private room in the middle of the night? Everything that I've said, everything that I've taught, the people who have followed me, all of it has happened openly. We met in the synagogues daily. We met in the temple. We met in the places where Jews were were constantly gathered. I haven't been teaching one thing out in the open and publicly and then hiding separately with my disciples and telling them something else. Everything I've said has been said openly to the world. And then he says in verse 21, Why do you ask me? Jesus is calling them out on their illegal trial. Why are you asking me? I shouldn't have to give an answer for myself. I have done my preaching openly. You've heard it. You're not supposed to be questioning me at all. He says, ask those who have heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. Jesus just calls them out. He says, where are your witnesses? Where are the ones who are supposed to give testimony to what I've been teaching? You want to know about my disciples and what I've been teaching? Call my disciples in here. Call in the ones who heard me teach. Jesus is just asking for a fair trial. He knows he's not going to get it. But he's going to make sure that they know that they cannot get away with what they're doing in the sight of God. 
God knows their, their ways. Verse 22 says, When he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Do you answer the high priest like that? You think about what just happened in verse 22. All Jesus has done is demand the fair trial. Why are you asking me? Go get your witnesses. And the man opens his hand and strikes Jesus in the face because he has insulted the high priest. Surely it was for this man that Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Now I don't know if this man became a Christian later on, or if he realized the truth when he died and opened his eyes in eternity. But I guarantee you, when he realized who Jesus was, and he remembered what he had done to Jesus, his stomach sank. On the day of judgment, when this man stands before Jesus as his judge, he will regret striking Jesus because he insulted the high priest. In defense of the high priest, he strikes the very Son of God who gave him breath, who put strength in his body so he could swing his hand. Do you answer the high priest like that? Jesus in verse 23 answered him, If I have spoken evil... Bear witness of the evil. Oh, there he goes calling for witnesses again. He said, you know what, I've, I've been teaching openly. Call for the witnesses that will testify to my innocence. And now he's been accused and he says, if I've spoken evil, bear witness to it. Call in the witnesses who are, who are going to speak against me. But if well, if I've spoken well, why do you strike me? Jesus is just saying, you guys know that this is wrong. You know that what you're doing is against the law. And then Annas, verse 24, sent him bound to Caiaphas the high priest. Annas had had enough. Maybe it was his conscience. Maybe the words of Jesus were settling in. But he was done. And he sent him on to Caiaphas. The curtain closes on scene two. And then as we come to scene number three, we're back to Peter again. Verse 25, now Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. We've already seen that. He's by the coals. It's a cold night. He's denied knowing Jesus once already. Therefore they said to him, we're assuming this is the they who were gathered around the fire with him. You're not also one of his disciples, are you? It's the same question again. Peter, maybe a little more bold, a little more frustrated this time. I can hear his voice getting a little louder than that first. No, no, I don't, I don't know Jesus. And now he says, I'm not. I've told you already. No. But then verse 26, one of the servants of the high priest... A relative of him whose ear Peter cut off. 
That's somebody who would know, I would say. (laughs) Did I not see you in the garden with him? You know, what Peter did there in the garden was kind of dumb anyway, but I bet he really felt like an idiot now. I mean, how do, you, how do you get away from that? How many people cut a guy's ear off that day? No, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was you. I've got this cousin who was in that crowd and I was there with him. I saw you cut his ear off. And Jesus picked it up and healed him. I, I'm sure of it. You're the guy with the sword. You're the guy with the temper. Didn't I see you in the garden with him? And Peter doesn't even know their motives here. Verse 27 simply says, Peter then denied again. The other gospels tell us that this was the point at which Peter became irate. He was angry. He started swearing and cursing. I'm telling you, I don't blanking know the blankety blank man blank. And immediately, a rooster crowed. Now what's significant about the rooster? Jesus, remember, had said, when Peter was so confident, Lord, I will never abandon you. I will never deny you. I will go with you to the death. And Jesus said, Peter, this very night... Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And what seemed so impossible in the mind of Peter just hours earlier, now he's done it and he instantly has that reminder of what Jesus said when he heard the rooster crow. Then the scene closes. With Peter's denial. The other gospels tell us that he immediately, once he heard that rooster crow, once he knew what he had done, he went out and he wept bitterly. I listened to a sermon this week by the late R.C. Sproul. And he pointed out that when Paul is giving his instructions for the Lord's Supper to the Corinthians... He refers to this night, not as the night that Jesus was tried unfairly. He doesn't say that it was the night in which Jesus was beaten. He doesn't say that this was the night in which Jesus was mocked and led to the high priest. But the one notable thing from this night that may have caused more pain to Jesus than anything else that happened, Paul referred to this night, he said, in the night in which he was betrayed. Surely most of us at some point have felt that feeling. We have known that experience of betrayal. Someone maybe who you once thought was a close friend. Someone who would stand by you. Would back you up. Be there in every season of life. 
And then when things got difficult, they walked away. Betrayed you. That'll make a person sick. And of all the things that Jesus experienced this night, perhaps the most difficult was that he was abandoned by the men who were closest to him. One showed up in the garden, betrayed him with a kiss, and led the officers to arrest him. Others, when the officers came, scattered. They just ran in whatever direction they felt the safest. A couple of them made it as far as the high priest's chambers. But even then, when questioned, Peter swore and cursed that he'd never even met the man. Let's make some application here before we finish. Three points of application. One, following Jesus often leads to uncomfortable and even dangerous places. The disciples, if asked only a few hours earlier, would have said, Lord, we're going to go with you all the way. We will be with Jesus to the very end. And when you're with Jesus... In a room alone, enjoying a meal, it's easy to say that. (laughs) It's easy to think that. When we're all gathered together as the church on a Sunday morning, when we sing our songs together, when we put our offerings in the plate, when we pray together, when we hear the preaching of the Word, even on a covered dish Sunday, it's easy to say, man, it's good to be a Christian. There's no other life I'd rather live. But sometimes, following Jesus leads us away from those comfortable places. And leads us to places where we may even be in danger. Peter and John, no doubt, felt the danger of being this close to Jesus. They have intentions of killing Jesus. And we're right here with Him. If we associate with Him, that may mean we go down too. We remember the stories from the Old Testament that we love. How that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, faithful to God in a strange land. The idol is there. They're commanded to bow down and worship. They say, we're not going to do it. They're bound. They're led to the fire to be thrown in. The king says, you have one last chance. I'm going to play the music. Bow, and I'll spare you. And they say, you know what? Our God is fully capable of delivering us from your hand, O King. He is able to deliver us from this fiery furnace. But, even if He doesn't, O King, we will not bow to your image. Then Daniel, some years later, Faithful to pray three times a day. It's all of a sudden made illegal to pray to anyone but the king. And Daniel, just as he's always done, goes to his room, opens his windows, and begins to pray. He could have kept the windows shut. 
He could have prayed a quiet prayer with his eyes open as he walked to the office. But no, he said, I'm not going to change my convictions. I'm not going to waver on these ways. I've served God all these years. I'm going to pray as I always have. He didn't know that he was going to be spared from the lions. But he stood firm. He was faithful. The apostles and all those who lived in, in, in those early years of the church, so many of them boiled in oil, crucified various ways, heads decapitated, abandoned, stranded on islands to starve to death, beaten, mocked, thrown to lions, burned at the stake, Christians throughout church history, even to this very day in parts of the world, suffer for the name of the Lord Jesus. And we too must be ready to suffer. Oh, I pray that we'll be spared from it. I pray that persecution would never come to us. But friends, are you ready? Do you love the Lord so that should the time come, you would be ready to suffer. Following Jesus often leads us to uncomfortable and sometimes even dangerous places. Application number two. Even the most confident disciples are susceptible to failure. Even the most confident disciples are susceptible to failure. Let he who stands take heed, lest he fall. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. If someone among you falls, restore such a one, because it could just as easily be you. Even those who you think could never fail. Man, that person knows the Bible. They love the Lord. They pray fervently. They've been faithful all these years. They could never fall. I'm going to model myself after that person. Please be careful. Because as soon as you put your trust in anyone besides the Lord Jesus Himself, you will be disappointed. I will disappoint you. Your Sunday school teacher will disappoint you. Whoever your favorite preacher is out there in the world, they will disappoint you. And you yourself, no matter how confident you may be of your standing with the Lord, of your relationship with God, of your commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, do not be overly confident in yourself. Because Peter, the one who swore... He would never leave Jesus. Cursed him. Said that he never knew him. So even the most confident of disciples are susceptible to failure. But application number three, this is very important. Jesus' suffering and death is sufficient to even forgive those who have denied him. We'll see this as we go on later in John chapter 20. But when Jesus had died and rose from the dead, He said, go tell the disciples and Peter that I'm coming to see them. He saw Peter by the lake 
He said, Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Peter, do you love me? Lord, of course I love you. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. You know, if it had been me, and Peter did this, I don't even know the man. I don't know that I'd have made him one of the leaders in the first churches. <laughs> I don't know that I'd have put him in charge of discipling the other believers. But he restored Peter. He gave Peter that opportunity to profess his love for Jesus. And then he gave him work to do. How easy is it for us? Maybe we don't outright say, No, I don't know Jesus. No, I'm not a Christian. More than likely for us, it's when the opportunity arises to bear witness and we just keep quiet. Someone says something related to the Bible or to their eternal soul or to religion generally and you have an opportunity to share the gospel and you just take the next sip of your coffee instead. Or you just keep browsing the shelf instead. Or you change the subject. We're all guilty of denying Christ, at least in that regard. But let me tell you this. The death and the suffering of Jesus is sufficient even to forgive those who have denied Him. If you have denied Him, if you have forsaken opportunities to bear witness to Him... If you have not lived the Christian life so that others may know to whom you belong, you are not beyond forgiveness. You are not beyond the grace of God. Paul said, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. However much sin you have, there is far more grace available to forgive that sin. Perhaps some of you have denied Christ, not in the sense that you've failed to be a witness for Him, but you've denied Him in the sense that you have never submitted to Him in the first place. You've heard the gospel of Jesus, how that He's died for you, that you're a sinner and deserve His judgment, but He loves you and He came to save you. He laid down His life for you. And you've pushed that message away. You've rejected it. You've denied it. You don't believe it. You've heard it over and over again and you've become calloused to it. Let me tell you that the forgiveness that Jesus provides in His death is sufficient to save you. No matter how far you've gone in sin, Jesus saves. Repent. Submit to Him. Put your trust in Him alone. He'll forgive you, give you everlasting life. And you can have fellowship with God for all of eternity. Would you stand with me as we pray?
Lord, I am glad that you don't just give us examples in Scripture of the people who did it right. I'm thankful that we also have the accounts of those who failed you, yet who received your grace. Because I, I identify more with them. Lord, I know my failures. I know my shortcomings. I know my sin. And it encourages me to know that you can restore and even use men like Peter. It gives me hope. Like Paul said that you saved him who, who believed himself to be the, the chief of sinners so that it could be a pattern for all those who would come to believe in him. You have saved the worst. Lord, we know that you can save us. Lord, may we stand faithful. May we not deny you. May we stand firm in the heat of battle to fight the good fight, to wage the good warfare, as Paul told Timothy. But Lord, when we do fail, may we fully trust in your grace because your grace is sufficient. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.